Well, election day is getting closer and closer, isn't it? And as election day gets closer, the candidates begin to pull out the stops and they try to eviscerate their opponents. Anything and everything that can be hurled against their enemies is loaded in their political cannons and is fired at them, isn't it? If you've been following the news, you probably know all about Bain Capital and you know about Newt Gingrich's wives and all of these things, right? Because Election Day is approaching. Well, as Jesus, the elect one of God, approached his election day in the elect spot, Jerusalem, his opponents began to hurl attacks against him. Like a pack of wolves, they circled around him. But they thought they were trying to bring down a lamb. What they found out is that this lamb has teeth. <laughs> this is a lamb, but he's also a lion. He has the heart of a lamb and the heart of a lion. And so, in Luke chapter 13... We've already seen that Jesus begins to fight back. He turns on those who are turning on him and seeking to bring him down, and sometimes even with tears in his eyes, he condemns them and pronounces their judgment. Jesus has likened Israel to a fig tree that is in danger of being dug up and tossed aside for unfruitfulness. Jesus hammers the Pharisees for their hypocrisy, and in particular the Pharisee who wrongly accused him of a sin when Jesus healed on the Sabbath. Jesus teaches about the spread of the kingdom implying that the Gentiles are going to be brought in, and it's not just the Jews that are going to sit down in the kingdom of God. Jesus says that the wicked generation of Israel, the first, will be last. And that the generation, in general, of course with exceptions, will be cast into outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And, also in this chapter, he pronounces that Israel's house is left to her desolate because of her rejection of the Messiah. In the midst of this list, we find our text today, Luke 13, beginning with verse 22. Our text begins with a question. Jesus was traveling and preaching throughout the cities and villages. Someone asked him and said, Lord, are there few who are saved? And he said to them, Strive to enter through the narrow gate, for many, I say to you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen up and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and knock at the door, saying, Lord, Lord, open for us, and he will answer and say to you, I do not know you where you are from. Then you will begin to say, We ate and drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know you where you are from. Depart from me, all you workers of iniquity. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God and yourselves thrust out. 
They will come from the east and the west, from the north and the south, and sit down in the kingdom of God. And indeed, there are last who will be first, and there are first who will be last. I invite you to travel through this text with me today. We see in verse 22 that Jesus went through the cities and villages teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. Traveling and teaching. Teaching and traveling. Jesus knows that his time is near. And this segment of the Gospel of Luke, beginning at chapter 9, 52, then on through up until after the crucifixion, we call the journey to Jerusalem. Because Jesus knows that his time is near and his main objective is to travel to Jerusalem where awaits his destiny. But as he goes, he teaches. He takes advantage of the time. He seizes the opportunities to teach the gospel to the lost and to train his disciples who will then build the church after he is gone. But during it all, Jesus never forgets the big picture. He's on his way to Jerusalem to die for the sins of all who will believe upon him. Well, we too should be teaching as we travel, should we not? Parents, we should be seizing the opportunity to teach our children as we travel through life. Fellow believers in Christ, we are teachers, every one of us. We are to take opportunity to teach one another. I teach you when we gather together, but I expect and I desire for you to teach me as we get together and as we discuss things. We are all teachers, one of another. And always remember that as we are dying daily to ourselves and as we are traveling to the new Jerusalem to live that we are to do all for the glory of God. And we're to be seeking to bring glory to Him by teaching one another the ways of our Master. And as we do this, there is a need to focus on the practical concerns of Scripture as well as the theological, right? And so we see here, even in our text, Jesus has asked a very theological question and he now gives a very practical answer. Then one said to him, Lord, are there few who are saved? Here is an intensely theological question. And this is a question that was no doubt rooted in the belief of Judaism at that time that the Jews were the chosen few. So he asked the question, are there few who are saved? So the Pharisees, and this is recorded in the Mishnah, if you were an Israelite, basically you were saved with just a couple of exceptions. According to the Pharisees, if you denied the resurrection, you're lost. If you denied that the law came from heaven, you're lost. If you were an Epicurean, 
you're lost. Don't know why they got picked on out of all the other false religions out there. And those who read heretical books uttered charms or pronounced the holy name would be lost. But does Jesus directly answer this question? No, you know what? Jesus often knew what people needed to ask and he answered the question they needed to ask not the question that they did ask. And so what does Jesus do? He gives a practical answer. He does not directly state that few are saved. In fact, he focuses on individual diligence to enter into the kingdom and he teaches that people will come from afar to enter the kingdom but many that think that they're a shoe-in will find their feet slammed in the door on that final day. So how does he begin to answer this? Notice this man asked the question, are there few? But one of them answered, are there few who are saved? And he said to them, so he's speaking generally now to all those that are listening, strive to enter through the narrow gate. For many, I say to you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen up and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and knock at the door, saying, Lord, Lord, open for us, and he will answer and say to you, I do not know you where you are from. Now, I read this from the New King James Version, which says, Strive to enter through the narrow gate. If you have an English Standard Version or a New American Standard Version, it will probably read the narrow door there, which does fit with the parallelism in the text because notice verse 25, when once the master of the house has risen up and shut the door. Even in the New King James, it speaks about door there. So it probably is referring to a door and the door of a house. But that's just the picture that Jesus is using to make a spiritual point. The picture is that of a house with a narrow door. And the master of the house definitively shutting the door. And then some outside calling to him and saying, Lord, Lord. But he says, I don't know you. And he does not grant them entrance. I want us to take a look at a few words in these two verses that we've just looked at, 24 and 25. And let's analyze these words to understand Jesus' meaning and then how it applies to us. First of all, Jesus says here to strive to enter the narrow gate. In the Greek word, that word which we translate as strive in English is the word which has as its root agonize or agony. As a matter of fact, it's the same word used of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane when he was in distress in the Garden of Gethsemane. So it's saying agonize to enter in through this narrow door. Now, we need to clarify here, Jesus is not in any way teaching that people are saved by their works, by their striving. But, he is referring here, I believe, to the striving of faith. Intense longing to enter the kingdom. Remember, we've looked at the passage regarding the kingdom citizens. 
The kingdom's citizens are violent, according to Scripture. Not violent in the sense of abusing other people, but the Scriptures say the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and the violent take it by force. What is the picture there? It's of people striving to enter the kingdom. They're determined to enter the kingdom. They will not be denied the kingdom. So they diligently, with faith in Christ, pursue entering the kingdom. This is through faith. Believing the message of Jesus and following Him in faith is what is in view here in this statement. This is contrasted then to attitudes like, well, I'm a shoo-in for the kingdom because I'm an Israelite, like the Jews at that time. Or attitudes which maybe you know people today, or maybe it's you today, who have this attitude. Well, I think I've been good enough to make it in. I think my good will outweigh my bad in the last days. You know, say, I'll make it. No big deal. Or attitudes like, well, I hope I can get in in the end. I, I just I just hope so. Maybe I'll make it. Or, well, there's time yet. I'm young. I've got a lot of life ahead of me. I think I'll make it in. I've got time. All of those are contrasted by Jesus' statement here. Strive to enter in through the narrow door. But, I want to make a clarification here. This type of striving, as Jesus puts it, is not a fearful, anxious, joyless, peaceless obsession and drive either. It's not. There's a balance that has to be obtained here. Some people just coast through life, right? Like one man who told me, I always take the path of least resistance. What's the problem with that? Boom, straight to hell. It's the path to least resistance. This guy, last I heard, his path of least resistance, he had ended up in a car wreck and was in a nursing home. I have no idea if he ever decided to strive to enter through the narrow door and make some difficult decisions which lead to life. But then, on the flip side, some of us agonize in sinful ways until we destroy our bodies and destroy people around us. The balance is to be filled with the Spirit and thus to display the fruit of the Spirit. What is the fruit of the Spirit? Look over at Galatians chapter 5. 22 through 26. Can we strive as Jesus is speaking of, but yet still be joyful people? Can we strive and still have peace within? Yes, we can. Galatians 5, beginning with 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, 
goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. And those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. There's a striving. That doesn't save us. It doesn't save us to crucify sinful desires, to nail them to the cross, to nail our lust to the cross, to nail our anxiety to the cross. That doesn't save us. But those who are Christ will do such things. They've crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another or envying one another. Pursuing the fruit of the Spirit. Being joyful, loving, peaceful, promoting these things. Striving to promote these things. We may take work for some of us. But we are to be diligent in those things for the glory of our Savior. That by way of contrast, our text in particular here is speaking to the coasters. To those who just pop it in neutral and say, well, I'll take the path of least resistance. Just let it roll down the hill. He's speaking to those who don't strive. Those who are not driven to enter the kingdom and serve the king with diligence. Those who may think they're going to make it because of their location, like the Israelites, or because of their proximity of the gospel. Because it goes on. Jesus goes on and says, Some will say, Well, Lord, You were there teaching us. We were there. But he'll say, you know what? I don't know you. Are you coasting today? Or are you striving? Jesus says here that the door is narrow. What does that mean? What does it mean that the door is narrow? I think it's referring to that there's only one way into the kingdom. That way is through Christ. Remember uh, John 10, verse 7? Jesus is talking about being the good shepherd. And he says to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. He says, I'm the door. You know what? The door is not wide enough for Buddha. The door is not wide enough for Muhammad. The door is not wide enough for people who lock arms with all religions and then try and press their way in. No, they will not fit. The door is only as wide as Jesus Christ. And He is the only way into the kingdom. Through faith in Him. What did He say? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by Me. He is the door. 
I do think then that this implies that relatively few people will be saved. Now, don't miss the word relatively there. This implies that relatively few people will be saved. In uh, Matthew chapter 7, 13 through 14, Jesus likens the ways to salvation as gates and paths, right? When we read this passage in Luke where Jesus talks about the narrow gate or narrow door, you were probably thinking about the passage in Matthew, weren't you? What does it say there? Matthew chapter 7, beginning with verse 13. Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and there are many that go in by it. Because narrow is the gate, and difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are how many? Few who find it. So I say relatively few people is what's being spoken of here. Now, we have to be able to reconcile this with passages of Scripture like Revelation chapter 7. In Revelation chapter 7, speaking about those who go through the tribulation, it says, After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could number, of all nations, tribes, people, and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands. A number so great that people can't even count them, it's saying. How does that fit with few there are who find it? Well, here's one thing to consider. What percentage of folks from each generation that has ever lived on earth do you think are truly saved and in the kingdom? Does it 95%? Think about the generation alive on this earth right now. Let's say everybody alive right now on this earth. Do you think 95% of the people are saved? 90%? 80? 70? 60? 50? 40? It's probably very few, isn't it? Who are truly saved. Who are truly striving to enter by the narrow door. Believing as Christ as the one way. Resting in Him for their salvation. Demonstrating that they've had a work of God in their hearts by bearing fruit and doing good works. It's probably very few, relatively speaking, when we look at each generation. So if you take every generation, though, ever since the world has been created and all of God's elect who have ever been saved, do you think that's going to be a great number in the end? Yeah. And then I think there's going to be a massive revival in the end as well. Israel being brought in. What a glorious thing. Are we striving to enter? Back in Luke then. Jesus continues. And he says, Many I say to you will, in, will seek to enter and will not be able, verse 24, when once the master of the house has risen up and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and knock at the door, saying, Lord, Lord, open for us, and he will answer and say to you, I do not know you where you are from. Notice this. 
It says many will desire to enter but will not be able to enter. Does that present a difficulty for any of you in your thinking? Many will desire to enter but will not be able to enter? What, what is that teaching? Is that saying there that there are people that are truly going to come to Christ in faith but they're going to be rejected by God? Emphatically, No. Consider these scriptures. Matthew eleven twenty eight. Jesus says, Come to me, all you who labor and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. John six thirty five. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger. He who believes in me shall never thirst. John six thirty seven. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. John 7.37, on the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. There is never, has never been and will never be anyone who comes to Christ in true faith who will be cast away. John Bunyan in his autobiography This was one of the truths that God used to quiet his fearful heart. When he looked at the scriptures and realized that no one ever came to Jesus genuinely seeking help, and he turned them away. Never. Never. If you come to Christ in faith, he will accept you. So what is this thing? Many will desire to enter, but will not be able. It's saying that there is a day upon which Christ will rise and shut the door into the kingdom. And entrance will be denied. Now, this happens for individuals either when they die at the, at the point of death, if they have not come to Christ in faith and have not entered into the kingdom, then the door is shut and there is no second chance. It is appointed unto men once to die and then the judgment. This could also happen, though, that somebody becomes hardened to the point where they cannot be restored to repentance. And the door is shut. Consider Hebrews 6 for a moment. A difficult passage, I realize, but the fact of the matter remains, it does state that there are some who cannot be restored to repentance. Consider this. Hebrews 6, 4 through 6 in particular. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they fall away, to renew them again to repentance, since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to an open shame. Now, it's a very difficult passage, and there have been numerous interpretations of the passage. 
In a nutshell, here are five interpretations that uh, are fairly prominent. One is that this is speaking about people who are saved and who lose their salvation. Okay? Uh, I disagree with that. It goes on in the text to say, Brethren, and I'm paraphrasing, we are hopeful of better things for you, things that accompany salvation. Okay? And then we also have so many other passages of Scripture, such as I have already read, where Jesus says, The one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. And then he goes on to say, Nobody can come to me unless the Father who sent me draw him. And then he says, I will raise him up at the last day. And then he also talks about, in the Gospel of John, that nobody can pluck his sheep from the Father's hand or from his hand. Okay, so I don't think this is talking about losing salvation. Another view is that it's speaking about loss of rewards. But if you look down a little bit farther in the text, it talks about thorns and briars whose end is to be burned. And it talks about being cursed. That sounds a little stronger terminology there to me than just losing some rewards. And especially when it goes on to say it's impossible to renew them to repentance. Okay? Uh, So I really don't think this is just talking about a loss of rewards here. Another view is that this is just hypothetical. It's the boogeyman story to scare the kids into doing what's right. So I tell your kids that uh, you, better be, you better watch out for monsters in the closet so that they'll stay in bed and be quiet, which probably wouldn't work anyway, right? Because they'd be so afraid to be coming out of the room. But so, so that view said that it's not really possible for anybody to lose their salvation, but if it were, you better beware. And you better hold fast to your confession. That doesn't make sense to me, quite frankly. I, I, don't, I think it uh, defangs the text. Okay? Another view is that that was unique to those Hebrews at the time and that that doesn't apply to anyone else. Quite frankly, I don't see any support for that either. The general approach that we take to Scripture is that it applies to us unless the scriptures clearly indicate that it was unique to a specific situation or a specific time. And I I don't find that in the text. So the view that I take is that this is speaking about people who were never truly fully regenerated, but they had partaken of the blessings of being in the community of Christ... So they had seen things like the Holy Spirit at work. And they have tasted of good teaching. But then they became apostate, left the community, and that the, a point can be reached when someone cannot be restored to repentance. And that's the whole point that I was trying to bring out from the text. Whatever we take from this text, we should see that it is possible for people to fall away again to the point where they can't be restored to repentance. Now, if you truly come to Christ in repentance and in faith, you have not reached that point. Okay, so don't fear that you've reached that point. Because if you're fearing that you've reached that point, you probably haven't reached it at all. This is talking about people that get so hardened against Christ they want nothing to do with the gospel. Right? Make sense? But... The fact of the matter is, 
But the warning is here and it makes sense that we're to strive and we're to keep striving. We're to have faith and we're to keep having faith. We're once saved, but we're always being saved. Thus Jesus says, strive to enter the kingdom. Many will seek to enter and will not be able to enter. And I think also that in mass that will happen on that great eschatological day of judgment. When the door to the kingdom will be shut, all those who are in will remain in, and none can ever go out once the Lord saves them. But all those who are outside them will be refused further opportunity to come in. And at that time, there will probably be people who will see that they're missing out on a good thing. And they will desire to enter, not with true faith in Christ, not bowing the knee to Christ, but they'll see judgment bearing down upon them. And the desire to avoid that judgment. And so what might they say then? We ate and drank in your presence. You taught in our streets. Jesus, it's me. You, you saw me. I was there. I was in church. He will say, I tell you, I don't know you where you're from. Depart from me, all you workers of iniquity. The interpretation that I gave that there's that day of judgment coming in the text, I think, is speaking about that is supported, I believe, by verses 27 through 30. What does he say there? He will say, I tell you, I do not know you where you're from. Depart from me, all you workers of iniquity. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God and yourselves thrust out. You see, I believe this reference to the kingdom of God is talking about that final stage of the kingdom when all are coming in and the end times events are all being wrapped up. The kingdom of God is here now. And if you're a believer, you're in the kingdom of God. But there is going to be a culmination of that kingdom when Christ comes back to earth and he judges the righteous and the unrighteous and he rules over new heavens and new earth. I believe this is referring to that end times event. Because it says they will come from east and the west and north and south and sit down in the kingdom of God and indeed their last two will be first and their first two will be last. What does Christ say to those who say we ate and drank in your presence you taught in our streets? He who is the master, clearly in this, in this parable, he is the master, the one that rises up and shuts the door. He will begin to say, I tell you, I do not know you, where you're from. Depart from me, all you workers of iniquity. You see, proximity to the message and ministry of Christ does not equal entrance into the kingdom. You can come to church every Sunday. You can listen to the preaching of the Word. You can rub shoulders with godly people. 
that doesn't mean you're in the kingdom. I could stand here and preach the gospel and study it in and out. That does not necessarily mean that I'm in the kingdom. You realize there are many pastors who are not in the kingdom of God. Just because you have a proximity to the gospel does not mean you have entrance into the kingdom. Those who enter the kingdom are those who strive by true faith in Christ. And those who have been given the ability to reach, to strive and have true faith in Christ who make it in by the work of Christ, not by their own works or by their knowledge. Although you've got to know something to be a Christian. As I've, I've said that over and over again, but you've got to know something to be a Christian. <laughs> you've got to know Christ. And you've got to know something about the work of Christ and you have to be resting in Him for your salvation. They say, we know you, we know you, but he says, I don't know you. Which is better, to say that you know God or for God to say, I know you? John 10.27, Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. 1 Corinthians 8.3, But if anyone loves God, this one is known by him. Galatians 4.9, now after you have known God, or rather are known by God, would you rather say, I know him, I know him, I know him, or have him say, I know you. You're mine. That's what it's all going to come down to in the final day. Sure, we should say, I know him, and I love him, and I have faith in him. But it's the ones that he says, I know you who are assured will sit down in the kingdom at that day. And those whom God doesn't know will be categorized as workers of iniquity regardless of how much good they have done in this life. For one thing, they don't have true love. Can somebody who's not a child of God have true love? But what do the scriptures say? But I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love. Though hmm. so I have the gift of knowledge, the gift of prophecy, and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, but I have all faith, so that I can remove mountains, but have not love. I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but I have not love, it profits me nothing. All those who do not truly love God and have godly love as a result of being regenerated by God are categorized as workers of iniquity and they will all perish. And there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God and yourselves thrust out. Wow, what a picture weeping and gnashing of teeth. Have you ever seen someone so disappointed or so enraged that they were literally grinding their teeth together and you could hear the gnashing of their teeth? That's the picture here. 
On that day, the door is shut. Judgment is taking place. And there are people who, in extreme disappointment, extreme rage, are weeping and gnashing their teeth. It's a vivid picture of extreme disappointment, rage, distress. Consider some scriptures with me for a moment. Psalm 112, first of all, verses 9 and 10. Psalm 112, 9 and 10. The psalm has been speaking about the righteous and the blessings upon the righteous. And we get to 9 and 10, speaking of the righteous. He has dispersed abroad. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. His horn will be exalted with honor. The wicked will see it and be grieved. He will gnash his teeth and melt away. The desire of the wicked shall perish. Mm, on that day, the wicked will see the righteous exalted and they will gnash their teeth in fury with the exaltation of the righteous. Matthew 8, 11 and 12 says, I say to you that many will come from east and west and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, but the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The sons of the kingdom, those unbelieving Jews, in a particular of Jesus' generation as he's speaking to them, the ones who thought they were a shoo-in for the kingdom and who rejected Christ, cast out in weeping and gnashing of teeth. As we consider this picture, where we connect, rightly so, the weeping and gnashing of teeth with a biblical teaching and concept of hell, right? Let's consider some sources of future misery for those who are unrighteous and who have the door slammed upon them and are not able to enter into the kingdom. I, do, I have a list here, so I'm going to move through it somewhat rapidly. You may not have time to turn to these, but just listen to this. Sources of future misery for being cast out of the kingdom. The loss of all hope or complete despair. Have you ever found yourself in despair and devoid of hope? Job 8.13 So are the paths of all who forget God. The hope of the hypocrite shall perish. Those who are cast out will have no glimmer of hope. There will be complete loss of hope. Luke 16.26 Besides all this, this is the parable of rich man and Lazarus, probably referring to actual event and not parable. We'll get to it in a couple months. Beside all this, between us and you, there's a great gulf fixed so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor those from there pass to us. So there's this picture. Rich man in Abraham's bosom. Or the Lazarus in Abraham's bosom. Rich man in torment. And there is no hope because there's no desire to pass over. No desire to pass over. And hope is even shut down in that instance when there's the request made. You know, send somebody. And 
says, no, they have the teachings of the prophets. If they will not believe that, they won't even believe if somebody rises from the dead. Hope is shut down. There are bitter reflections there in Luke 16.25. Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things, but now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. There's even a reminder of you had a good in that life, but now you're in anguish. So bitter reflections. There's a deprivation of rest. No rest. Revelation 14.11 The smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever and they have no rest day or night who worship the beast in his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. No rest day or night. Have you ever gone for days without sleep and you were so weary that your bones were screaming and every little thing just touched you off. Pow, pow, pow. You couldn't handle any little stressor. For those who are lost, no sleep day or night in absolute torment. Banishment from the righteous and suffering while the saints are rejoicing. Luke 13.26, our text, there will be weeping, gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom and yourselves thrust out. The righteous will be rejoicing at the wedding feast of the Lamb. The unrighteous will be thrust out. Darkness and gloom, Matthew 8.12. Sons of the kingdom cast into outer darkness, weeping and gnashing of teeth. Painful fears and terrors. 2 Corinthians 5.11 Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. Enduring the just scorn of the universe forever. Daniel 12.2 And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. And then the one we usually think about regarding hell. Pains of the body by fire. He cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tongue of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I am tormented in this flame. This is what the lost will suffer and why there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. But contrast that with the experience of the righteous. They will come from the east and the west, from the north and the south, and sit down in the kingdom of God. It's referring to the gathering together of the Lord's elect. Psalm 107.3 People be gathered out of the lands from the east and from the west, from the north and from the south. Isaiah 43, 5 and 6 Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your descendants from the east, gather you from the west. I will say to the north, Give them up. And to the south, Do not keep them back. Bring my sons from afar, my daughters from the ends of the earth. Isaiah 45, 6 and 12 That they may know from the rising of the sun to its setting that there is none beside me. I am the Lord and there is no other. I have made the earth and created man on it. My hand stretched out the heavens. All their hosts I have commanded. And then, as we consider this image sitting down in the kingdom, 
Marvin Vincent, in his word studies, says this. Sit down, and the image implies at a table. Jesus cast his thought into a familiar Jewish image. According to the Jewish idea, one of the main elements of the happiness of the Messianic kingdom was the privilege of participating in splendid, splendid festive entertainments along with the patriarchs of the nation. And Jesus confirms that. And he says, you'll sit down. They will come and sit down in the kingdom. Splendid, festive entertainments along with the patriarchs of the nation. So for the righteous, we will delight in a banquet and festivities with King Jesus. Let's, let's do some sanctified reasoning together here for a minute. Isn't it the case that oftentimes we picture heaven as a disembodied existence? We're spirits floating around and maybe sitting on clouds. You know, uh, I guess it was the sequel to Old Yeller and the boy not wanting to go to heaven because just sitting around up there picking on one of them guitars, you know, sitting on a cloud picking on one of them guitars. That's oftentimes the picture of heaven. It's just, it's kind of this glow and there's not really form or substance. But it's not what the scriptures teach. Now, we're going to have a resurrected body, right? And it's going to be fashioned after whose body? After Christ's body. Christ, when he was raised from the dead, was recognizable, right? When he revealed himself, they could recognize him. He had scars, even, that indicated who he was. Christ was touchable. Reach forth your hand and place it into my side and touch my hands. Jesus could eat. Ah, what did he do? Took some honeycomb and fish. He ate it in their presence. Our bodies are going to be formed after his body. You know what? The scriptures say, 2 Peter chapter 3, there's going to be a new heavens and a new earth. So we would real bodies that are touchable, that can eat. Now we won't have to eat because there's no death, so there's no cellular degeneration, so we don't have to have the nutrients to feed us. Well, either that or there'll always be plenty of food and we'll always eat and we won't have to worry about it. <laughs> One or the other. But we with these resurrected bodies that can eat, that are recognizable, that are touchable, that can move, that have substance, that don't grow weary and don't have tears and sorrow and death, there's going to be a beautiful realm created that we'll get to live in. We'll get to experience that. This could be more beautiful than we can even imagine. It's a new earth. I think it's very possible we'll be able to explore that new earth. We'll be able to hike and run and enjoy this new creation. Maybe we'll be able to fly. I don't know. But think about how glorious that is. And our text is saying that God will gather them, all the righteous, from the, all the corners of the earth, and they will sit down in the kingdom.
A picture of sitting at a banquet with the Master, King Jesus. What glory. What glory awaits us on that day when we sit down with King Jesus. So think for a moment about the day in your life when you felt the best. I mean, this was the best day of your life. You felt energetic. You felt optimistic. Your body felt strong. It's going to be like that and 10,000 times better every single second. Think about the the most savory food that you've ever tasted. And then think about the food in the wedding feast of the Lamb. Now, is it, is it just a metaphor? Is it just a picture? That is possible, but yet, like I said, Jesus ate in His bodily form. and So I'm not going to be ultra-dogmatic about this, but I, I don't see any reason why we won't be able to eat. Why we won't be able to delight in food and savor it in a way that we can't even imagine now. Oh, what glories that day will hold. And think, think about the most beautiful music you've ever heard. And then think about the singing of the angels. Oh, what glory. What glory. What glory. Indeed, there are last who will be first and there are first who will be last. What's Jesus speaking about? That's a direct reference to the lost Jews in the generation when Jesus was there on the earth. They believed they were first. They had been the chosen people of God in a unique way. But the majority of them would be last. They would be excluded. They would not have a place of honor at that banquet. Today, they'd refer to those that are coasting. They're not striving to enter. Maybe they claim to be Christians. Maybe they go to church, hear the gospel, but they're just coasting. first will be last. The last will be first. They may think they have prominence in the world because of their proximity to the gospel and the preaching of the gospel, but on that day, they will have no place of honor. They will be shut out. So the question today, are you striving to enter or are you coasting? Christ is the door. Enter through Him in true faith and you will have joy and participate in the marriage feast of the Lamb. Father, we ask You to give us diligence to strive righteously, not sinfully, but joyfully. To strive, to keep striving even when times are hard. To enter that kingdom to sit down on that last day.
We thank You, Father, that You have made it possible through Jesus Christ for some to enter in. We ask for hope and joy as we consider the blessings that await us in that new heavens and new earth. The greatest blessing of which is to be with our Savior Jesus and to be free of sin. But oh, all the other blessings that are a part of the great reward which you have in store for us. The freedom from sorrow and from death, from heartache, from pain, from trial, from suffering, the intense pleasure and joy and beauty of it all that we can experience. May we hold on to that vision and image and have hope when the striving is hard. Lead us into righteousness for your name's sake. We ask this for the glory of Jesus. Amen. Thank you.